Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13 as we consider the second half of the chapter we began last week, considering especially the emphasis of our Lord's betrayal. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon specifically on our Lord as being one betrayed. Certainly I've heard sermons on the betrayer, on Judas, but it'll be a different sermon this morning. Let me read to you, please, from verse 18 down to the end of the chapter, verse 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus speaking, picking up his words now. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then Leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the priest of bread, he then went out immediately. And it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, 
why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray once more, shall we? Our gracious Father in heaven, as we read these tender and tragic words, we pray once again that the very open heart of Christ would be made manifest, that we, sharing and receiving his love afresh, might be transformed by it, might requite it, might be able to show it in some appropriate measure to others as he has to us. We pray that you would teach us to be truly his disciples for Christ's sake. Amen. I just realized the sun is more and more going to be going in this direction. Um, James, would you mind um, getting the uh, uh, shade here and sparing the uh, people on this side of the... Thank you. Thank you so much, if you wouldn't mind. Sorry to distract everybody. The Gospel of John has had many nicknames over the years, and probably the most common is the Gospel of God's Love, or sometimes God's Love Letter to the World. And that reason is probably found in John's 3.16 and in the passages that we are going to be studying over the next several weeks in the upper room, where Christ's amazing love is on beautiful display. Now, Christ's love has been on display already in so many ways throughout this book, of course, in his wonderful words, in his mighty deeds, but now... John goes into very slow motion for us and dedicates, you notice, almost the last half of his book to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, where that amazing love will now come in like a flood. That here in the upper room, the very heart of Jesus is revealed. Tomorrow, his cross will reveal to us a love that shrinks from no sacrifice, The thorns will crown him, truly, prince of life, and the cross will be his throne of power. And there, lifted up on the cross, as he says earlier, he will love us to the end, that we might love him in return and behold the brightness and the glory of his Father's face in his. And it's uh, it's just such a magnificent revelation of God that we are about to be studying. I mean, think about it. Previously, almost the whole world labored under the false idea of pagan superstition, of vengeful and capricious gods and idols. But what a very different revelation of God is about to be set forward before us. Uh, it's, it's kind of poetic, and so I don't think it reads well. I put it in your bulletin that you might be able to read it later if you like. As Andrew McLaren wrote this, If there is nothing diviner in God than his giving of himself to his creatures... If the highest glory of the divine nature is to pity and to bestow, then the cross upon which Christ died towers above all other revelations as the most awesome, the most sacred, the most tender, the most complete, the most heart-touching, the most soul-subduing manifestation of the divine nature and stars and worlds and angels and mighty creatures and things in the heights and things in the depths, to each of which have been entrusted some broken syllables of the divine character to make known to the world, 
dwindle and fade before the brightness, the gentle brightness that beams out from the cross of Christ, which proclaims God is love. That McLaren could sure write. That, that is the meaning of what Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Not that there was no glory before, you see. Jesus has revealed much glory already. But now in what follows, the world is going to learn truly the depths of his amazing love and his saving power. And it is these revelations that will dispel all of our doubts and fears and melt our hearts. And that these are some of the greatest and most precious thoughts in the world. And I'm sorry I won't be able properly to do justice to them. But John slows down so that they will sink into your ears. We began last week seeing the amazing love that was on display in Christ. Washing his disciples' feet and learning what that spoke to us about God and his gospel. And about the godly life. Today, Jesus will have more to tell us about his love and our love for one another. But first, he has words both for Judas, who will betray him, and Peter, who will deny him. And that does take up the bulk of this section. And so I'd like us today to focus on the Lord, but to consider first Christ's amazing love for Judas, second, Christ's amazing love for Peter, and third, Christ's amazing love for us to receive and give. First, Christ's amazing love for Judas. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus is troubled in spirit and declares the betrayer is at hand. Nations have their traitors whose names live on in infamy, a Benedict Arnold or a Viking Quisling, and so does the kingdom of God. And Judas Iscariot is probably, therefore, the most dishonored name in the history of mankind. You remember a few weeks ago, we looked hard at Judas, and we considered his deception, the danger of deception. He is a character study in betraying the Lord, and many still walk in his way, betraying the Lord with a kiss. Well, we contrasted, you remember, Mary's devotion to Judas's deception, as John had said it before us. But today, I'd not like to focus on Judas, but on Christ's amazing love for him. And I realize that sounds very provocative. I hope I have your attention, at least, and I hope to make good. Let us look at Jesus on this night in which he was betrayed. And I'll introduce to you the point this way. In a few minutes, we'll be coming to the Lord's table, and I'll be repeating the apostolic words, which you know so well. How does it begin? I received from the Lord, Paul says, that is the Lord Jesus, what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Strange. Of all the things that he could have said about that night, of all the things that the Lord might have told him in 
we might remember about the Lord's Supper. So many things he could have said about that night, on the night in which he washed the disciples' feet. On the night in which he gave them that new commandment to love one another. That would be nice. Or the night in which he spoke to them of the Holy Spirit, whom he was sending. But no. What we are to remember again and again, that this was the night in which he was betrayed. There is something here that is important for us to understand in the sufferings of Christ and what it meant for the Lord and even more important for us to remember when we come to this table as it was an important part of his passion, his sufferings for you and for me. Now it had happened to David before him. And in that psalm we sang, Psalm 41, David sings this sad and bitter and angry lament about being betrayed by his own familiar friend. You can't be betrayed, of course, by an enemy. An enemy is an open enemy. It ha- there has to be first friendship for there to be betrayal. And this is what is so often forgotten about our Lord. Jesus perfectly kept the commandment to love his neighbor as himself, to love the brethren. He perfectly kept it. And this is why, therefore, we read that Jesus wept over the hard-hearted sinners who were about to take his life. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have longed to gather Your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's why Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him as he was about to walk away. Jesus was no dispassionate Messiah. In the fullness of his emotional life and his humanity, he loved. He loved as we long to love. Of course, there's a difference here between Jesus and David, that Jesus knew he was about to be betrayed by his familiar friend, as he reminds us here. Jesus was no hapless victim. This betrayal served a purpose, a very important purpose, for which Jesus had come into the world. And it was one more way, in knowing this, that he demonstrated himself to be the divine Messiah, which is why he tells his disciples, I tell you before it comes, that when it comes to pass, this betrayal, you may believe that I am. Again, the claim of divinity of Jehovah. Still, though Jesus is not taken by surprise, that doesn't mean it didn't hurt. If some of you perhaps have children who have turned away from you or left their faith in Christ, then you know something of how grieved the Lord was to watch this all in Judas. The pain doesn't go away because you know about the betrayal. The pain is because you know about the betrayal, even though you saw it coming and watched it happen. In fact, if some of you have experienced this, you know that there are few things so painful to the human heart to have one so beloved. 
Jesus knows that pain, I say, better than any of you. His perfect love was even more unrequited than yours. But to be a perfect high priest for us, he had to experience the full measure of our sorrow, or as it says here, as he's about to announce it, how he is troubled. And betrayal by one so close to him, who had been with him day after day, was part of the full measure of that suffering. Now, you remember, this is just the beginning of his sorrows in so many ways. I mean, by the end of the night, they had all forsaken him. Denied, betrayed, abandoned by his disciples at the hour of his greatest need. He was beaten and whipped and humiliated by his enemies. He was brought alone before rulers and condemned to death as a wicked man. He had his holy beard plucked. He gave his face to shame and spitting. And after all this, he was nailed hand and foot to the cross and there suspended between heaven and earth, He was forsaken by everyone and everything so that at the dark hour, even the last support was taken away. And he cries out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so you see, in every way, he alone had to experience and take the full measure of our misery and curse and to bear the wrath that we justly deserve. And he underwent all that pain and all that loneliness and laid down his life for his friends so that he would therefore understand our lives as well, that he understands our struggles and understands our miseries. And the Bible says elsewhere that it is through these very trials that he has not only atoned for our sins, but been made our high priest and perfected by these sufferings. That is, as man, he is perfectly fitted to us to be our mediator, true God and fully true man in one beloved Savior. And what does it say? In that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. He is able to help you. In other words, he knows the pain. He knows it better than you. He knows what you go through, and he is able to help us. He has navigated every last misery and trial and temptation of our lives, yet without sin. And why did he do all that for you? Now, we suffer likewise. We are betrayed. We are downcast. And what do we do with it? Do we brood over it ourselves and turn it into self-pity, which is one of the most debilitating of all temptations? Do we take our sufferings and turn them into this self-pity to isolate us from God and to consume us from the inside and destroy us until we sink into that slough of despond, miserable and depressed and prone to be led astray then by false teaching and wild ideas? We are taught, rather, to bring all of our troubles to Christ, to find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. It says, because of all this, he is able to help you. He is able. He's had particular experiences of your sorrows and the miseries of your human nature. He's lived it so that his heart 
his human heart being filled with compassion, and he's acquainted with what can therefore bring you relief. Why do you resist bringing your troubles and trials and miseries to him? He is acquainted with what will help you. Why would you claim it as your own when all that you have, even your misery, should be brought to him? And he says, as it were, cast all your burden upon me and I shall sustain you. Be anxious for nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication. Bring me your requests with thanksgiving. Let them be known to me and my peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And the devil says, no, don't do that. Keep them to yourselves. Hide them. Obsess over them. Keep them inside. Don't bring them to Jesus. The devil would use your very sufferings and sorrows as weapons to attack you, as fiery darts to bring you down. But if you bring all your pain and trials and sufferings to Jesus Christ and put them in his hand, then your opponent's weapons can be turned against him and have the opposite effect in the hand of Jesus. And he can turn those sufferings into strengths. He can turn your weakness into his power. He can draw us close and turn these weapons against our enemies, baptizing these evil weapons in his own blood. For you see, when we come to our Lord Jesus, we find someone that though he sits on a throne, yet he is like unto us in every way, yet without sin. He understands. He didn't go through all this to mock you. He didn't go through the pain to make fun of yours. He didn't go through the loneliness so that you would isolate yourself from him. Oh, no. He has gone it through so that he could put his arms around you and say, my child, I understand. I really understand. And I am able to help you. And I'm able to be with those in trial because I have been there. I have undergone the same sufferings so that I could understand you and help you and have sympathy in your hour of need and be your high priest in every way. And what does this table tell us then as we remember week after week that it was on the night in which he was betrayed? It is this, that Jesus has the highest degree of sensitivity, the greatest tenderness, and sympathy, no sufferings and sorrows were greater than his because he could feel them in a way that our sin dulls us to it. Or as one writer says, he made bare his breast under the strokes and laid open his soul that they might sink into the inmost parts. He left nothing of the whole nature of our sorrow or suffering that he did not taste. And he declares to you that he is able to help you that this betrayed Savior is able to change the meaning of pain, that just as those things that were against him were used for him, so by these very sufferings that we experience, we may be drawn closer to him and strengthened in him and made more fit for his service, given the victory in Christ Jesus, that when we are weak, and we bring these wounds to Jesus. His power bears us up. His pierced hands receive us. And he says, my child, as he embraces it, my child, I know, I know, and I am able to help and give you grace in your time of need.
This is to be remembered, I say, when we come to the table, that even in the midst of our cruelest disappointments, that he is not failing to place our salvation even before his own broken heart. There was more love in Christ's part than betrayal on Judas's part. He loves you, O man, and has been through it all that you might find grace to help. First, in my longest point, that Christ's amazing love for Judas, his familiar friend, was a love that pierced his heart. And not for him alone, but for you. By all means, therefore, look carefully at Judas as a warning. But for every look at Judas, the betrayer, take ten looks at Jesus Christ, the betrayed And know that you can surely find sympathy and help and comfort in the Prince of Life who watched with the purest sorrow, the deepest sense of personal loss, when his familiar friend Judas walked out the door and it was night. Christ's amazing love for Judas. Second, and more briefly, let's consider Christ's amazing love for Peter. He then begins to teach the disciples, and Peter interrupts. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. We will consider this at length as the denial happens and unfolds, but I don't want to pass over the great artistry of this passage as John sets before us on this night the two betrayals. Indeed, uh, to many observers, there would not be that night a great deal to distinguish one treason from another. But there was a great difference, of course. One man went to hell and the other went to heaven. One man was about to die by his own hand soon after his crime, and the other man would live a long and extraordinarily, extraordinarily fruitful life and die a Christian martyr and fulfill his proud boast from the upper room, ready to die for Jesus. And that's also, by the way, the meaning of verse 36. As Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answers him somewhat cryptically, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow me afterward. As by strong ancient history tradition, Peter will die upon a cross, a Christian martyr. Well, it's an interesting combination or collision. A traitor's name that will live forever in infamy and another name that will become one of the most celebrated names of human history. The one we use to brand our enemies and the other we name our sons. These two men, for very different reasons, though would have appeared to observers that night as far more alike than different. Reminding us that for no Christian, however close to Christ, no Christian merits his salvation because P- 
Peter is every Christian in so many ways, right? That we also are always overestimating ourselves and underestimating our sins. We also have denied him a thousand times at the critical moment when we should have spoken up. And no, the difference between Peter and Judas is not that one man was a sinner and the other was not. That one man was a traitor and the other was not. That was not the difference. And it is not the difference that makes the difference today. What is the difference between these two men? It's ultimately found in the first verse we read in verse 18. I don't speak concerning all of you, for I know whom I have chosen. That ultimately that is the final difference that's accented in this chapter. Judas was not in Christ and Peter was. And Christ wants Peter to know that, by the way, I also know all about your denial ahead of time. But, but I will not let you go. Perhaps you, like Peter, like me, have various moral weaknesses and shameful sins in your past. Perhaps you wonder what the Lord could possibly do with someone who's failed him as publicly and miserably as you and I have? If so, you need to remember that the Lord knew about it long before, just as he knew about Peter long ago. That the Lord is nevertheless going to strengthen him for service through this process of refining. And you know what refining means, right? You know how metal is refined? The basic idea is that you apply enough heat And all the hidden impurities will rise to the surface. It's what's going to happen to Peter. And it's a lot like us. It's the way that metal and men are refined and their hidden impurities brought out and drawn off. It's through heat. And part of that heat is the fact that Jesus told him about it ahead of time and he still did it. Peter doesn't know himself. He's not yet conscious and serious about his own Weakness, And you know the proverb, pride goes before a fall, or 1 Corinthians 10, let him who stands, or rather thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Jesus had not only chosen Peter for a reason, verse 18, he let him fall for a reason. And he will restore him for a reason. For the Lord wants to commend his love, and he desires humble useful, self-aware, prayerful and watchful servants. And you'll know that in the end, Jesus seeks him out, recommissions him three times, one for each denial. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter will learn the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of his heart. It will not only humble him, but raise him to a closer and more constant dependence upon the Lord, teaching him to watch and pray lest he fall into temptation again. And it will make Christ all the more precious, knowing that he who has been forgiven much, the same loves much. And Peter, likewise, could say, it's true, my strength is sufficient for you, says the Lord. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, this is his amazing love for Peter and for us. How many times have we failed the Lord and we think, oh, Lord, what can I do now? I've ruined it. Does it disqualify us? I tell you, verse 18, Jesus chooses such people for this very purpose. 
And make sure, as the Lord is able to make sure, that we neither trust or boast in ourselves. That we might learn to be humble and gracious people. And learn the meaning of 2 Corinthians 4. Now we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The Lord tells Peter his weakness. Our weakness. Not to threaten our security in God, but to threaten our security in everything else but God. And so maybe I'm speaking to somebody here like Peter, who's fallen badly or worse. And you know it and God knows it. And you think, well, what hope is there for me? And maybe you think that even disqualifies you from any useful service. I I tell you that if your fall has its proper effect in Christ's hands, it will all the more qualify you for useful service. For what use does the Lord have for proud, self-reliant, unaware people? We need to be brought to know that we stand only by grace. We stand by God's strength and not in our virtue. As Paul could confess after his shameful past, I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And he says elsewhere, for this very reason, for this very reason, that he might demonstrate his kindness, his patience, his grace, He's appointed me. This is the welcome to come to the Lord today. Perhaps you need to hear, not not the call to come up where we are, you see, but to come down, way down to where we both really need to be, where the Lord will take us to a place of honesty and a place of of humble, self-aware, dependent service to others. For Jesus seeks people who will not just testify of grace, but who will exemplify it and enjoy it. And those past sins don't disqualify you from service to the Lord. It is sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. And that is why, in the case of Peter as well, it's an amazing love. In conclusion, I'm just going to finish with my third point today. Christ's amazing love for us to receive and give is here on display. Christ's amazing love for us to receive and give. Verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I love you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. That here, right in the middle of this discussion about Judas and about Peter, we're being commanded to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, uh, in the Ten Commandments series I did in the fall, I had a whole sermon on that commandment. I called it the Eleventh Commandment, if you remember. And I won't go over the same ground. The sermon is online. But let me say that although there is great value in doing what I did last time, basically taking this commandment and then going through the whole Bible to see how has Christ loved us and how are we therefore to love others, it's also important to take a command like this in context. It's important not just to see how Christ has loved us, but to see how Christ has loved us. <laughs> in other words, 
Can you see the powerful irony here? Can you feel the wrench as you read it? That the Lord begins to speak of the sublime love of his followers for one another as the true manifestation of faith in him and of even persuading the world. In other words, we are now primed to hear how, how Christians will be very different from the world. So different, in fact, that the world will be forced to sit up and take notice and compelled to ask, whence this wonderful difference? But the words about this brotherly love so beautiful are scarcely out of the Lord's mouth when he must then turn to bring down proud Peter to the earth, predicting before the night is through in front of all of his friends, he's going to disown him three, three times. Right? There's nothing very otherworldly about cowardice or betrayal. The world is not going to wonder what power and divine gift causes men to tell lies to save their own skin. The world is very familiar with that. No one is going to fall at Christ's feet and worship him because he is surrounded by such cowards. What are we to make of this, this jarring contrast? Did you feel it? Of a call to Christian living so high and beautiful on the one hand, and then of a disciple, the chief disciple in so many ways of the group, so pathetically unfaithful and unfruitful and undistinguished of a commandment that will change the world, and a Peter who at least that night looks very much like a Judas. What a collision. What a paradox. But taking this commandment in context, we are reminded that this is the context in which Christ has loved and this is the context in which you and I will be forced to love as well. You see, this does put before us in a striking way the reality and the great difficulty of this calling. For let me say that we too have brethren who look and act more like enemies, truth be told. And in that very context, as the word just comes out of his mouth, we are told to love them even them, just as Christ did. Remembering that we ourselves do often ourselves appear to be the Lord's deniers or betrayers at our worst moments. And he has loved us still, and not because of us, but Christ in us, the hope of glory. And therefore, we are to love our often painfully betraying brethren in the same way. In our fellow men, there may be something lovable, but in our fellow Christians, we know there must be something lovable. Christ's spirit dwells in them. I am bound as a man to love my fellow man because he is a man, but I am bound as a Christian to love my fellow Christian all the more because Christ is in him too. Or as uh, I think it was Augustine said about him and his friend Alepius, we were washed in the same blood. That made all the difference in the case of Peter. Christ has chosen him, even him, even you and me. And Christ has sent us, therefore, to love his brethren and ours with this very difficult love, with his love.
Jesus knew how flimsy Peter's loyalty would be under pressure. It pained him, but he still called him and loved him as one of his own. Jesus still went to the cross for him. And when he rose from the dead, as, I know, as you know, he sought him out and restored him. So our Lord does with us. The Lord knows how far short we fall. He knows it better, far better than we know ourselves. And when we find love difficult, we must let it drive us back to Christ himself so that Christ's deep earnestness becomes ours. His deep pity ours. His patience, ours. This is the practical secret to loving difficult brethren. First, giving ourselves more and more to Christ and receiving his amazing love. And the further we are from him, the harder it will be to love anyone in his power, in his name. But having then received it, our calling is to become a channel of his love so that what we receive, we give, and however imperfectly it is, that will be the means by which the world will be compelled to know that Christ is the Savior of the world. Brothers and sisters, by your very betrayals, by your troubles and agonies, we will supremely be drawn closer to him, to be strengthened in him, and to receive the victory in him, the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And when we are weak, Lord knows, we come to Jesus, that his power may be made perfect in weakness, and that we may find grace to help in our time of need. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us grace that we might be able to give ourselves, to give of our very selves to our brethren, even when they have so treated us and abused us. Let us not fail to do and to excel at doing the main thing that you have made us to be and to do toward our brethren, to love as Christ love. Our Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit into our hearts to bear such fruit of love. We see the glory of amazing love shining forth in the darkness of that night and our night. And we pray, O oh God, that you would forgive us as we have indulged in self-pity, as we have been our own enemies, as we have let these miseries and betrayals embitter us toward you and our brethren. We come to you now that Christ might free us from all the snares of the devil and take up again the shield of faith by which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the enemy. Strengthen this faith through such miserable trials that your name may be praised in us on the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we, truly his people, may be embraced 